man, doesn't Christmas get busy? I mean, busy, busy, and it's good to just stop for a second, and hopefully today you're going to get refreshed, renewed, and excited for the new year. To, um, to be frank, I had a whole completely different sermon prepared, and yesterday I scrapped it because I was going to talk about a New Year's Eve message, and I just feel like we can't move on from Christmas quite yet. I was reading somebody um, online, and they were sort of, not I'm not going to say complaining, but they were noticing. It seemed that this year, people were talking about everything else, getting excited about everything else, but Christ. I don't know if that's fully true, but I think there's some truth to it. It reminded me of a story, it goes like this. There was a wealthy European family that decided to have their newborn baby dedicated in their enormous mansion. Dozens of guests were invited to the elaborate affair, and they all arrived dressed elegantly. After depositing their wraps on a bed in an upstairs room, the guests were entertained the rest of the evening very royally. Soon the time came for the main purpose of their gathering. It was the infant's ceremony. But where was the baby? No one seemed to know. The child's governess ran upstairs and returned with a desperate look on her face. Everyone searched frantically for the baby. Then someone recalled having seen him asleep on one of the beds. The baby was on a bed all right, buried beneath a pile of coats, jackets, and furs. The object of that day's celebration had been forgotten, neglected, and nearly smothered. The baby whose birthday we celebrate at Christmas, is easily hidden beneath the piles of traditions, cultural observances of the season. Where is the baby? And I think there's some truth to that. We get so busy rushing to different houses, wrapping gifts, making meals, that we forget sometimes that, you know, this is really about a person who actually lives and is alive today. My objective today is really simple. In, in some hopes, I wish I could almost open up the heavens for you to see that right now there is a real person sitting at the right hand of the Father who is alive. He's not a baby anymore. He's amazing. He's awe-inspiring. And so yesterday as I was saying, what do we really need to hear I think we need to hear Psalm 45. Psalm 45 is one of my favorite psalms ever. And it's all about him. And I want you to turn there. And it's a, actually it's called a, a wedding song. It's a wedding song of a song of, Cor, of son of Korah. It was written to King Solomon. And they say it's uh, in reference to his very first wedding day. He was married a lot more times after that, but this is his first wife. But you're going to see, it's really not about Solomon. I'm going to read from the NLT, and I'm going to study it from the ESV and the NIV, but I like how it's written in the NLT. Just get some water from my Christmas glass. And here's what it says. Beautiful words stir my heart. I will recite a lovely poem about the king, for my tongue is like the pen of a skillful poet. 
You are the most handsome of all. Gracious words stream from your lips. God himself has blessed you forever. Put on your sword, O mighty warrior. You are so glorious, so majestic. In your majesty, ride out to victory, defending truth, humility, and justice. Go forth to perform awe-inspiring deeds. Your arrows are sharp, piercing your enemies' hearts. The nations fall beneath your feet. Your throne, O God, endures forever and ever. You rule with an iron scepter or a scepter of justice. You love justice and hate evil. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you, pouring out the oil of joy on you more than on anyone else. Myrrh, aloes, and cassia perfume your robes. And ivory palaces, the music of your strings, entertain you. King's daughters are among your noble women, and at your right side stands the queen, wearing jewelry of finest gold from Ophir. Listen to me, O royal daughter. Take to heart what I say. Forget your people and your fathers far away, or your family far away. For your royal husband delights in your beauty. Honor him, for he is your Lord. Here's how the NIV ends it in verse 10. Listen, O daughter, consider and give ear. Forget your people in your father's house, because the king is enthralled by your beauty. Honor him, for he is your Lord. So what this is about, in my belief, if you look at verse 6, verse 6 says, Your throne, O God, endures forever and ever, and you rule with a scepter of justice. This verse is quoted in the book of Hebrews, referencing Jesus Christ. I believe Psalm 45 is what is called a messianic psalm, a psalm about the Messiah. Another word for Messiah is Christ. So Psalm 45 is all about Jesus. It's a wedding psalm, meaning it's how Jesus views his bride and how he's getting prepared for being with her for all eternity. I believe verse 1, here's basically how it's organized. Verse 1 is the opening. What he, he cannot not write about this. Verse 2 is about his first coming. What the king was like the first time he came to earth. Verses 3 through 5 is his second coming and what he expects out of his people. Verses 6 and 7 are his eternal throne, what it's like, what it's going to be like, what heaven's going to be like. And then verse 10 and 11 is the response of his bride. How should those who love him behave? How should they take everything they've heard and how shall they apply it? So really this is a psalm about God in the form of Christ as he is right now. Right now, believe it or not, says he is sitting at the right hand of the Father. That's where he is right now. Why is he sitting? Because he's a priest in the order of Melchizedek. As priest, he's done with all the sacrifices. So he's sitting in the Old Testament, priests never sat. They were always offering sacrifices. After Jesus offered his body, he sat down. That's where he is right now. So whether you know it or not, I, I think he hears me and I think he, he sees your heart. And so, so how you take this 
is more about you than it's about whether you like the sermon or not. This is an amazing psalm. So let's go into it. It starts in verse 1, and it says this. My heart is stirred by a noble theme. As I recite my verses for the king, my tongue is the pen of a skillful writer. The ESV says, it is like the pen of a ready scribe. And the idea here is, what he's going to write about moves his heart so much, he cannot contain it. It drives him. It's the most important thing to him. My question for you is, what drives you? Because what drives you is what comes out of your mouth, what you can't contain. For this writer, you know what he cannot contain? is the vision of the groom that he's going to be with for all eternity. And to me, that's really what Christmas is meant to be about. Falling in love with the one who loves us most. What, what do you love most? What do you talk about? In Jeremiah 9, I want you to go to Jeremiah 9, verse 23. Jeremiah says, there's usually three things people are occupied with on this earth. And he says they boast about them. That means they're really proud about these things, and they are driven for these things, and they live their life by these things. There's three of them, and then there's one that he thinks the true lover of the king should be about. So Jeremiah 9.23 says, this is what the Lord says. Let not the wise man boast of his wisdom. Boasting means take pride in. So he's saying, don't, don't take pride in what you know, how intelligent you are, how many degrees you have. Are you the one that has the last opinion on everything? Don't boast about that. And then God says, don't let the strong man boast of his strength. A lot of pe people take pride in their natural abilities, their athletic abilities, their beauty. Don't take pride in that. And then he says, or the rich man boasts in his riches. I would say that is where America is at right now. We want to be known by our salary, our bank accounts, our title of employment, are you a lawyer? Are you a doctor? How much money do you have? How big a house do you have? And God says, don't take pride even in that. Then what should I take pride in? Well, he says in verse 24, let him who boasts, boast about this. That he understands and he knows me. Do you know him? I'm not talking about, can you sing songs about a baby in a manger? Do you know the baby who became a man who now sits at the right hand of the Father? Like, do you have intimate conversation with him? Do you know what makes him happy and pleases him? Do you care? Well, the writer of Psalm 45 cared so much that he could not contain it. Sadly, I think some of us are more embarrassed that we know him than anything. To me, this, um, the reason we come to church and the reason we talk about Jesus is because it's true. It's not a game. It's, um, it's not just pretend. I was reading this article by the Pew Research uh, Council and they came out with something about last year and they said for most young folks, and by young folks, 18 to about 35, this is America, 
For young folks in America, religious identity has eroded, but faith has not. Only 13.6% of nuns, and by nun is N-O-N-E-S. There's a new category of Christians called a nun, or a believer called a nun. I mean, I don't believe any tradition, and I don't go to any church. I'm just a nunner. I'm just kind of out of it, you know. So don't try to peg me down. So they say only 13.6% of nuns are atheists. The vast majority, about 70%, describe themselves as nothing in particular. Among them, 90% say that they believe in some spiritual force. 60% are comfortable calling that force God. Isn't that nice? They're comfortable. 50% still say that religion is important to them. That's tens of millions of people who are spiritually seeking, said Pew Associate Director of Research Gregory Smith. They're not connected to a religious institution, but they're interested, they're interested in spirituality. But what does that mean? Like, this isn't a game. It's not like, I, I just believe. What do you believe in? Give me something concrete. Give me something that has proven itself. You know what I believe in? I believe in a king who's real. And let me tell you about it. First thing it says in Psalm 45, verse 2, is that he already came. And listen to what it was like when it, he came. Verse 2 says, You are, you, an individual, you are the most excellent of men. The um, NLT says, You are the most handsome of all. The ESV says, You are the most handsome of the sons of men. And when we hear that word handsome, we have a strange, what I would say, propensity to turn everything into sexual attractiveness. It has nothing to do with that. This has everything to do with countenance. Biblical countenance means the character inside of me comes out of me in my face. And there, to people who have a beautiful character, they are attractive. There's some people, when they enter into a room, you don't see, I'm not talking about seeing their physical features, saying, wow, I'd like to date that person. I'm talking about you want to know them. They light up a room. They're alive. This is saying that out of all the men who ever walked the face of this earth, you are the most excellent. There was no one as alive and as glorious and as incredible as you. Have you ever met that person that when they walk in, they just, everything flicks on, turns on? It's funny, when you watch a movie, if the lead character is a good character, he makes every other character in the movie come alive. Sometimes, some movies, there's no good character that does that. But I think this is what Jesus was. When he came into a room, he turned people on in the sense of, they became more of themselves when they were around them. Have you ever met somebody like that? That they are so interested in others that when they enter the room, they come alive. Not just because this person's alive, but he's interested in them. My question is, are you one of those people? I was watching, this, this is such a dumb thought. I was watching Rambo with my son the other day. And, uh, you know, it's Rambo part two. So I love the movie. I don't know why. Reminds me of my I, was, my, I was in better shape back then. So. But Rambo's on this boat with this Vietnamese lady, and she's 
says, Rambo, you know, what are you like? And he says, I'm, I'm expendable. I'm expendable. And, uh, and she says, what's expendable, Rambo? He said, here's what expendable is. You're invited to a party, but nobody cares if you don't show up. I think when Jesus came, people knew and they wanted him there. Do people want you there? I think we're supposed to reflect him. One writer says, you know what worship is? It's being fully alive. Jesus was fully alive. But, but then it says something even more interesting about him. It says you're the most handsome of all, you're the, you're the most excellent man, and NIV says, and your lips have been anointed with grace since God has blessed you forever. The thing about Jesus is out of his lips, out of his mouth came grace. Came grace. What is grace? Grace is giving people another chance. Grace is not judgment. Grace is not labeling people and sticking them in a box and keeping them there forever. Grace is not shutting people out because they insulted you. Grace is language of forgiveness all the time. I was thinking of some of the things Jesus said, and to me there's nothing more profound than, I mean, if you imagine it, you've got you to hear some of Jesus' words in context, and then they really hit you. So here Jesus just got done being whipped with a cat of nine tails. That's a whip that has pieces of bone shards on the end, so when they pull on the back, they rip the back, like you rip curtains with a knife and his back is bloody and tender and bleeding. The Romans put a crown of thorns on his head and so you can imagine there's blood coming down and they beat him up so he's all probably swollen in the face. They stripped him naked and he carries a cross beam. They hammer him to a cross on his hands and his feet and then while he's up there he says this. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. How? When you get insulted, do you say that? When somebody doesn't show up to your house for Christmas and you want them, do you say that? When, um, when you're not included and people don't, recognize you or they walk past you or they ignore you do, you, do you forgive them or do you put them in, a, in a, uh, you know, a box and say, this is the box of they are condemned, I've judged them, they're done. I'm not going to talk to them anymore. What if, I was thinking even this, what if, what if we made this statement, Father forgive them for they know not what they do, our New Year's resolution? <laughs> we would I think it would be harder than losing weight. <laughs> but boy, would it make a difference. It'd make a huge difference. I was thinking also on the cross. What if Jesus got mad? Because, you know, I just got spit in the face one too many times. I'm done with this. And he would have taken his hands and ripped them off the cross and ripped his feet off. What if he would have done that? There would be no salvation. He endured. To me, it's easy to judge people and to criticize people and condemn people. That's easy. That's not hard. You're not a tough guy because you can get mad at people. 
You know what's hard? Hanging in there with people even after the 77th time. And I think if you hang in there, maybe the 78th time, they'll listen to the gospel that comes from your lips because they'll be like, wow. That'd be a great New Year's resolution. So, so here's what happens. So we have in Psalm 45, verse 2, that talks about his first coming. Not only was he, his countenance amazing, grace came off his lips, and because he was full of grace, he blessed the world. He was Abraham's promised seed that gave blessing to the world. Then you have verse 3 and 4 and 5. This is his second coming. So here's what I think Jesus is doing. Okay, so I said he's at the right hand of the Father. So what is he doing at the right hand of the Father right now? So, so if I could see Jesus, he, it says, Scripture says, he does two things specifically. I think there's a third thing he also does. Here's the first thing he does. He intercedes for us. So he sees Derek Max, and he sees Derek was exhausted all weekend long, long hours at work. He's got kids. He knows Derek's really tired, and he knows Derek is getting ready to, to yell at his family. So Jesus says, Father, can you give Derek an extra bit of grace to be kind? So Derek is patient yesterday. So he, he intercedes on our behalf to give us what we don't know what we need. Second thing he does is he does answer our prayer. Cast your cares upon him because he cares for you. So we can, intercede, we can ask him for things and he answers our prayers. The third thing I think Jesus is doing now is I think every once in a while he gets up off of his chair and he goes to the heavenly barn. It's gold. It's a golden barn. And in that golden barn, he opens up the double doors. And then there's a stall with the most beautiful white stallion you've ever seen. And he takes a brush. It's a golden brush. And he brushes that white stallion. Remember the first time? See, if you, if you look across the barn, there's another stall. It has a donkey in it. That donkey's already fed and sleeping. The stallion is getting ready to be let out, to conquer. That's what verse um, 3 says. Gird your sword upon your side, O mighty one. Clothe yourself with splendor and majesty, and your majesty ride forth victoriously in behalf of truth, humility, and righteousness. Let your right hand display awesome deeds. Let your sharp arrows pierce the hearts of the king's enemies and let the nations fall beneath your feet. So this is really describing two things. Number one, he is on the throne. He is ruling from heaven. And his objective is to get people to live in behalf of truth, humility, and righteousness. ESV says truth, meekness, and righteousness. What is truth? So he wants his people to be people of truth, humility, and righteousness. Here's what truth is. It's living in the world as God designed it. So the definitions he gave us, we live underneath those definitions. So for instance, he said, you know marriage is between a man and a woman? That's marriage. We don't redefine marriage and twist it into something we want. We live under his definition. He's got definitions about what is proper sex. It's not adultery and fornication. It's we don't twist definitions to say having an affair or one night stand or a fling. That's a changed definition. It's not homosexuality. That's a changed definition. 
We don't change definitions. We live under his reality. And we live for truth. We also need to be people of humility. Humility is tough. The ESV calls it meekness. It's kind of contained power. But it's contained because I realize who I actually am. I am but dust, and he's the majestic king. So I don't tell him how the world should be. He tells me how the world should be. C.S. Lewis put it like this. He says, here's what humility is. Whenever anything goes right, a humble person will give credit to other people. When anything goes wrong, a humble person will take the blame. Treat each other better than yourself. Philippians chapter 2. That's humility. To me, that's almost, that's the essence of humility. How do you see it worked out? Every person I'm with, I care more about them, their needs, their desires than my own. Ephesians said, you know what my word should be for is building each other up. That's humility. And then righteousness. What is that? Righteousness is living in obedience to his word because he wants to glorify himself in me. That's an amazing statement. Paul the Apostle said, God chose me, set me apart by birth so he could reveal his son in me. How does he reveal his son in me? Every time obey, I obey, I bring him glory. Righteousness shines more light on Jesus' greatness. Ephesians 2 says it like this. It is by grace you've been saved through faith. Not of works, lest any man to boast. If you keep going down, then it says, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works. Righteousness is doing good works in my body, so when I do them, it gives him glory. When your kids do something good, like they'll sing in a play and they'll be the star of the play or they'll be really good at sports, in a sense, that gives you glory. You're like, yeah, that's my kid. That's what God wants from you. When you do good works, that's my daughter, that's my son. That's truth, humility, and righteousness. So let's say I tell somebody this and they're like, that's, I don't want to, I don't want, that's stupid. I don't want to do those things. I want to live my own life. I can do it on my own. I don't need anybody to tell me what to do. I'm my own God. Okay, okay. Do you want the second half of his coming? Verses um, 5 and 6. Let your sharp arrows pierce the hearts of the king's enemies. Let the nations fall beneath your feet. That's the second coming. I want to show you a verse that is really shocking. It's in the book of Deuteronomy. It's chapter 32. It's the fifth book of the Bible. So you open up the beginning of Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and then Deuteronomy chapter 32. So this was written by Moses, and this was right before he was going to die, and he's going to write about the coming king and what the coming king's going to be like. If I was a good artist, I'd like to draw this, but I'm not that good an artist. But it's incredible. It's Deuteronomy 32, verse 39 through 43. 
And this is about Jesus, believe it or not. I don't think people see Jesus like this, but take it for what it's worth. I'll read it slow. Use your imagination. Listen to what it says. So God stands up. Jesus stands up. He says, see now that I myself am he. There is no God beside me. I put to death and I bring to life. I have wounded and I will heal and no one can deliver out of my hand. I lift my hand to heaven and declare as surely as I live forever. When I sharpen my flashing sword and my hand grasps it in judgment, I will take vengeance on my adversaries and repay those who hate me. I will make my arrows drunk with blood while my sword devours flesh. The blood of the slain and the captives, the heads of the enemy leaders, rejoice, O nations, with his people, for he will avenge the blood of his servants. He will take vengeance on his enemies and make atonement for his land and the people. So what's happening right now is while Jesus is in heaven getting ready to bring out the stallion, people are ignoring him, a lot of people. And so what's happening is they think they're getting away with it. But like it says in Romans 2.4, he is storing up wrath. So every time someone sins, it's like water hitting a dam. And then they sin again, and the water hits a dam, and the water hits a dam. Slowly the water's building up. There's going to be a day when he's done being patient. People don't believe that. So while he's up in heaven, while I'm talking right now, I think he's saying... Yes, you're right. That's what Romans 2.4 says. He's patiently waiting, knowing that his patience leads people to repentance. Because if he ripped his arms off the cross, people would have no chance. But there's going to be a day when the dam is going to open, the water is going to come pouring out, and it's going to destroy all those who were non-believing in this word. He's a pretty incredible God, isn't he? I mean, my point is I want you to see this isn't just a nice baby with red cheeks in Bethlehem. So he's coming again. And then we go back to Psalm 45. He does have an incredible kingdom waiting. Verse 6. Your throne, O God, will last forever and ever. So he's in charge and he's never going to leave or lose his he doesn't care about polls. Did you know that? So, you know, the Wall Street Journal poll or the Fox News poll or CNN poll. I think it's pretty low in his favor right now, but I don't think he cares. Um, a scepter of justice will be the scepter of your kingdom. You love righteousness and hate wickedness. Because he loves... This is the coolest part. Because he loves righteousness and hates wickedness, God has set him apart and anointed him with joy. So because he hates wickedness, joy is the flavor of his kingdom. Psalm 16 says, at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Did you know the reason why life stinks is because of sin and wickedness, not goodness? Malcolm Muggeridge, who was a TV executive in England for a long time, said the problem with media, meaning movies and TV, is they, they have an ability to make evil look good, exciting, and wonderful, and good, boring, and mundane. When the reality is, in real life, evil is boring and mundane and exhausting. 
But good is exciting and fresh and alive. So, for instance, those who sin and lie, they have to remember all those sins and lies they've told. And then when they go to bed at night, there's guilt that comes in, and there's, they get tired. I can remember when I was finally saved. I gave Christ all of my sins. I asked him to forgive me, and I knew he did. I put my head on the pillow, and I, I didn't have to worry. I was in peace. True peace brings joy, and his kingdom has none of the stuff we're fighting with down here. It's going to be joy, joy forevermore, and God has anointed him with the oil of joy. It's interesting, the book of Hebrews uses this phrase about Jesus, saying he has more joy than all his companions. We kind of view God as an old curmudgeon who's always angry. When scripture says he is the, probably the one who laughs the most. I was talking to Bob Ford, he said, that's an interesting thought. He said, you think God laughs that much? And I said, Bob, look at it like this, God made you. <laughs> if you know Bob Ford, you know what I'm talking about. <laughs> Have you ever had a kid that just makes you laugh? It's just funny. They're just funny. I think God laughs more than anything because he has hope, and laughter is the language of hope. It's going to be okay. It's going to be good. Is this kind of heaven worth it? I mean, is it worth it to live for that kind of heaven? I think for Phil Potter it is. If you notice, it's in the present tense I'm saying that. I think for Kathy Harrison it is, and Dave Harrison it is. I think for Edith Howland it is. I think for Larry Skydema it is. I think for Charlene Winnell it is. If we didn't have heaven, what do we have? Seriously. Like Charlene Winnell is one of the first people I met coming to this church. I, when she died a couple days ago, if that's it, what is this? But if this is it, if this is it, <laughs> the greatest promise we ever have, we have this man waiting for us in heaven for all eternity, and he's on the throne, and he's never going to let evil take over. That's enough for me, I'll tell you. Shoo. And the reason why it's enough for me is the way the rest of this ends, because the king loves you. I love how the NIV 1984 puts it. Listen to what it says. Starting in verse 8, all your robes, and he's talking to his wife. And who is the wife of Christ? The church. Those who are made righteous by his blood. They are his wife, and they are going to be robed in a splendor that is amazing. And watch, they're the center of his attention. All your robes are fragrant with myrrh and aloes and cassia from palaces adorned with ivory. The music of the strings makes you glad. I mean, God is full of joy. Daughters of kings are among your honored women. At your right hand is the royal bride in the gold of Ophir. So here's his bride dressed in gold, probably shimmering gold. What does God say about her? What does the groom, Jesus, say about her? Verse 10, listen, O daughter, he's talking to the bride, consider and give ear. Forget your people and your father's house. 
That means quit playing around with all of this trifling little nonsense. Why? Why? Because of verse 11. The king is enthralled with your beauty. I'm not sure God loves you. You're not sure God loves you? He's enthralled with you. How do I know? How do I know he loves me? Have you ever looked at the cross lately? I mean, he paid a lot for you. Actually, he paid all he had. His blood is priceless. The king is enthralled by your beauty. Then it says, honor him, for he is your Lord. Show him honor. Honor him by the way you live your life, by the way you use your words, by the way you behave with others. Honor him, for he's your Lord. Couple questions, is the world and all its trinkets worth trading for the love of a king? Faith believes that this is true. Do you believe this is true? If you believe this is true, you prove it by the trade you make. Do you know worship is just trade? Do I trade the promises of sin for the promises of God? Or do I trust God's promises and let go of sin knowing that that honors him, and he's going to honor me. So, the reason I, I, was, I was thinking of, the reason I changed this is my first sermon. Here was, here's what my first sermon was going to be about. In the book of Isaiah, there's this king of Assyria, and he's going to attack the nation Israel. They live in a fortress, and they lived inside the fortress. And the king of Assyria brought all of his troops, and he said, if you don't surrender, we're going to starve you out and make you drink your dung and, or drink your urine and eat your dung. It's a very exciting message for the new year. And I'm reading that, I, really I'm doing my devotions in Isaiah, and it was, it really, like it was an amazing passage, because what happens is King Hezekiah hears this, and he takes this letter from the king of Assyria, who says, I'm going to kill you. And he brings it before the temple of the Lord and lays it out, falls on his face in sackcloth and ashes, and he says, God, you need to rescue me. You have to rescue us. We're going to die. And it said God heard. God heard him. He heard his prayer, and you know what it says he did the next day? He sent out an angel of the Lord who struck down 185,000 men with one sword. It's kind of an exciting story. And that's why I was going to share it, so you could have more hope in God. And I'm thinking, you know, that angel Lord thing is pretty cool, but we have the one who made the angel Lord. We, we have the one who's in charge of everything that's visible and invisible, demon, angel, man, creatures in the sea. This king owns all of it, and they're all at his feet. Isn't he enough for the new year? Like I was thinking of 2022, you have, facing the new year, this man on your side. What can you possibly worry about? Faith is, faith is simple. Here's all faith is. It's taking God at his word and believing as if what he said is true. Are you faithful? Do you believe what he said is true? Not this kind of faith. It's, I'm spiritual. No, faith believes this is true. So as I enter into a world that scares me after death, I have 
the king. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not, along with him, graciously give us all things? Romans 8.32 So here's my final question. What do you plan on doing to grow more in love with Jesus this year? So if we're to boast about knowing and understanding him, what are you going to do to grow in love with him? Are you going, maybe, maybe you need to know this book. And I'm not saying that as a guilt trip, but this book is him. Actually, Jesus said in the book of Luke 24:44, everything written about me in the prophets and the history is me. It's me. That's why we get to know this book. We get to know how he thinks and what he wants. We're having classes. That's why Trevor made a big deal about it. We have classes so you can get to know him. Maybe you need to join a group or maybe get a couple people that will help you learn this. Maybe the second thing you need to do is just like Hezekiah, when he wrote out his prayer to God, when you feel the enemy is surrounding you, it might be a financial enemy or it might be a a, a health issue that is like an enemy who's coming to destroy you, write it down on a, on a journal or something and, and pray it like Hezekiah and show him because when he comes to answer, you experience him and you know him. You know him. Maybe the third thing you could do is... Um, Start taking up this New Year's resolution. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Try that. Try living like Jesus did, and you might get to know what it's like. Let not the wise man boast of his wisdom. Let not the strong man boast of his strength. Let not the What's the third one? Ah, see? You guys know. I didn't know that. Because I don't have riches. Let not the rich man, let not the rich man boast of his riches, but let him who boasts, boast that he knows and he understands me. I think that's a great New Year's resolution.